everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. We are starting a new sermon series this Sunday called Imitators and Examples, based out of the book of 1 Thessalonians. In this episode, Aaron Hesse and Nick Gibson are going to introduce us to this book by giving us some historical context and where it fell amidst Paul's journeys throughout Greece. They'll also talk about themes that emerge from this letter and how we'll be contextualizing them in this next series. Join us for Imitators and Examples during our live stream service at highpointchurch.org live on Sundays at 9 a.m. As always, if you have any questions from listening to this episode, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. I'm Erin Hesse, and I'm one of the hosts on the Engage and Equip podcast here. And I generally work with the small groups and connections at High Point, and I'm joined today virtually with Pastor Nick Gibson. Hello, everyone. So today we're going to be talking about the new series that's going to be coming out soon, um, Imitators and Examples, where we're going to be going through First Thessalonians. So Nick is going to talk us through a little bit of the background from the both, well, I suppose it's background to both first and second Thessalonians and then, um, great. And then we'll dive in beyond that. So Nick, yeah. Why don't you share with us a little bit, the context of the Thessalonians and where they were at when Paul wrote this letter. Right. The purpose of these, um, intro podcasts for books is the idea that when we, a church enters a series like this to preach through a book, we want to, as as people prepare ourselves for that series, by reading the book, the whole thing, in one sitting a number of times. Hmm. So the, the goal I want to put at people... Now remember, the, the book of First Thessalonians is... Let me let me look here quick. So in my my little study version, the book of First Thessalonians is... One, two, three, four, five, six... Par, up to part of seven pages. So you're, you're yeah. talking about like not a super long document. This it literally yeah. really is a letter that was meant to be read all at once out loud to people listening at a church service, right? Yeah, um, I read it in like so, twenty minutes this morning. Yeah, yeah, it's not it's not long. So it's and it's also one of the smaller, shorter epistles, right? So mm-hmm. Romans and First Second Corinthians are much longer. In fact, most people don't know this. People think that um, the epistles from Romans on out in the New Testament are there like in order of like chronologically or something like that, but it's not, it's actually size. People hmm. don't know this, but like Romans and first and second Corinthians are up front because they're the longest. Oh, interesting. And then it, it, it's not literally like they counted words. And so like Colossians has two fewer words than Philippians or something like that. But it, it kind of goes like that. The bigger epistles are up front hmm. and then it, it gets smaller relative to the, to Paul's epistles. And then when you get to the general epistles, it, it goes back again Sort of, because then you get Hebrews as kind of a long epistle there. So, yeah. Um, so, so even though First Thessalonians is later in the order of Paul's epistles in the Bible, it's actually his first one, as far as we can tell, chronologically. Okay. okay. Which is kind of fun to think of it that way. This is the first. So, and, and of course, this would be before Acts was written and before the Gospels were written. So, this would literally be the first New Testament book written, as far as we can tell. Yeah, and then just I mean, this Which is a little bit exciting. bigger picture. Yeah. There's a little bit bigger picture mm-hmm. question, but the second letter that was written, like Second Thessalonians, is that not long after First Thessalonians was written? Or, I mean, do we know the time span there? Uh, probably not very long after. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. 
Just okay, I don't, I don't want to. I don't get too far afield from what we said first. So, so my, if you're listening to this podcast, especially if you're part of High Point and you're or you're going to be listening to the sermons, it's important for you to just sit down, get yourself twenty or twenty five minutes, and read the whole of First Thessalonians in one or two sittings, preferably mm-hmm. one, because it's one argument, it's one letter. It's meant to be read as a whole. It functions as a whole. It's structured as a whole. Literarily, it's meant to be heard as a whole. It's also good to read it out loud or to listen to it read out loud. Hmm. Um, but that's actually a really helpful spiritual discipline to do that, to read whole books whenever possible, uh, especially when you're just starting to study a book. So yeah. um, what we're going to do today hopefully will be helpful. So as you read it, you pick up more because you know the context. Perfect. Okay. Now, um, before you read First Thessalonians, in order to really um, immerse yourself in the context, um, the place you want to read is in the book of Acts, chapter 17. So in Acts chapter 17, which was written after the book of First Thessalonians was written down by Paul. So Paul mm-hmm. wrote it, sent it, some 10 to 20 years later, Paul and Silas are, tell Luke what happened, and Luke writes it down. Okay, got it. Does that make sense? And yep, so, so Acts 17 us, is recounting. Acts comes first, right. Yeah. Right. So Acts 17 comes first in our Bibles. But in terms of how it was chronologically penned, right, First Thessalonians was, was a letter written in the heat of ministry, mm-hmm. whereas the book of Acts was a long-term work compiled by the Dr. Luke in relationship to the, to the eyewitnesses of Silas and Paul and other people in Paul's traveling companionship. Does that make sense? So it was much yep. longer work, much more difficult. And and of course, Luke writes two volumes, right? He wrote the gospel of Luke and then he wrote the book of Acts. And honestly, um, a number of scholars believe, and I think this is correct, that that was actually two parts of a trilogy that Luke was writing oh. a third volume. Yeah. We just because get if it. you look at how Acts ends, it just kind of fizzles out. It's like, yep. Mm-hmm. And you know, Paul's in Rome and he's on house arrest and who knows what happens to him. And he um, he's preaching to people who come see him. Mm-hmm. And we know that after that, Paul was released again. And then his death actually, it didn't come at the end of Acts. It, so it's not like he's in house arrest and then that ended with his trial and his beheading. That's not what happened. What happened is he eventually had a trial. He was acquitted and released. He went on another fourth missionary journey in which church tradition says that he did get to Spain, like he said he wanted to in the book of Romans, mm-hmm. and all the way to England. So St. Paul's in London is on a hill that it said Paul preached from, which isn't crazy. I mean, once you get to Spain, England's like another 20 miles. Mm-hmm. So it's not crazy that if Paul was released and he went on a fourth missionary journey, he could easily have done that. Sure. It's not any further than anywhere else. And if he had strong support in Rome, he could have gathered the money or whatever he needed. So, and he certainly had the guts. So St. Paul's in London really could be a hill that he preached on before there was really a London. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Mm-hmm. But I think if I'm, I'm pretty, so this would have been after Julius Caesar's conquest of England. So it would have been a Romanized England. Okay. Does that make sense? So, anyway, so, yeah. um, so it seems like Luke would have written another volume of like him getting released, him going to Spain and Britain and f- maybe parts of France. And mm-hmm. then later on getting arrested again and then martyred and yeah. it, so presumably in Rome. And cause there's a church in Rome, which is supposed to be the spot of St. Paul's beheading and martyrdom. And so that would have been a whole nother book. How do and you know? I'm very sad that we don't have that. Yeah. How do you know about these like instances since we don't have that a third volume? Are there just there are other Yeah, yeah, there's documents. testimonies in church history. So there's traditions that have come down to okay. us. But that's the problem. Like Luke like literally wrote down eyewitness accounts and we can read it and be like, okay, that happened. 
Mm-hmm. But some of these other things, it's just hard to know because you don't know who said them, where, like the just where they came from is difficult. And then you don't have somebody like Luke who's just always gets all the details right. And you mm-hmm. just kind of know they're, it's right. Yeah. Um, it, church history is hard like that because there's outside, one of the ways to really build your faith in like the gospel of like Luke's gospel and Luke's histories mm-hmm. is to read other church history histories. Mm-hmm. And they're written in what's sometimes called hagiography where uh, hagiography is, the, is based on the Greek word for holiness. So it's like you presume the absolute holiness of everything and then you tell it like a mythological story. And okay. so- the other the Christian histories that come down to us in tradition have this saint saintized version, like it's the story of the saints, and mm-hmm. so it's like cleaned up. We don't know if the supernatural power in it has been exaggerated or not, mm-hmm. because the way it's told is is just a different style. Whereas sure. Luke is just like, yep, and then Paul just healed the guy, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. the other stories just aren't like that. And so Luke has this kind of scientific and like historical narrative way of speaking about it, which is a different genre altogether. So anyway, so one of the great, my great statuses is is, um, that, you know, there's, cause there are biblical books that that would have been in the Bible that we just don't have. Mm -hmm. So there's the third book of Luke, probably almost certainly there's the third book of Luke or he, or he died right after he finished acts. And then of course there's the letter to the Laodiceans that we don't have Mm -hmm. other letters that we know Paul wrote. Right. Yep. So it, it may be that something happened and God didn't want them in his word because they weren't, there was, there was some break in inspiration in the author's writing. I don't know. But yeah. We don't have, anyway, point is, yeah. the point is for this is read Acts 17. Yes. Great. Acts so then that brings outlines us to... the story of, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, so oh, so the, the story in Acts, right, is in Acts, I think it's in Acts 14, 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. Um. Of course, Luke and Barnabas go on a missionary journey. They go through a, a number of places in modern-day Turkey. They come back. They decide to go on a second missionary journey. Barnabas wants to go back to all the churches that they've been to. Remember the word Barnabas, name Barnabas means encourager, right? Mm-hmm. So it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Let's go back and encourage the people who we led to faith. They need our support, right? And Paul's like, no, 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 we're missionaries. We go to new places. And apparently they get in an argument about it, and they decide that they split company. It's a really sh- it's, a, it's actually the, the word is they have a sharp disagreement. It's a very mm-hmm. kind of like sharp word that I, literally, I guess, that Luke uses. So Paul at that point picks Silas as his traveling companion and mm-hmm. leaves. And then Barnabas, I think, takes John Mark, but I can't remember right now. He takes somebody else and goes the other way, which is actually perfect in God's providence mm-hmm. because all those churches in Turkey needed encouragement and yet the gospel needed to go to new places. I mean, right. they were dry. It's too bad they couldn't have just been like, yeah, let's just split up now. Mm-hmm. It's too bad it had to be an argument. But it just shows that these guys are... These guys at some, you know, just weren't perfect all the time Mm -hmm. and everything, right? Or I don't know. I don't know how to interpret that otherwise. Anyway, so Paul goes on this next missionary journey. He goes to a part of Turkey they'd never been to before. And while he's there, he wants to go north and further east into Bithynia, which is kind of like northeastern Turkey, which would have put him on route to go into like Indochina and modern day Russia and places like that. And instead, in a dream... There is this Greek Macedonian man who comes into his dream and says, we need help in Macedonia. Come over here and help Mm -hmm. us. And Paul says that they don't explain why, but Luke says that the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them go into Bithynia. We don't know what that means. Hmm. But either either circumstances or providences made it hard to get into Bithynia, or they just felt inside their hearts like they just shouldn't go. And then they had this dream. So then they cross the water over into Greece, into the the section of Greece that was that at that time called Macedonia. 
which includes the city of Philippi and the city of Thessalonica. Those are the two largest mm-hmm. cities in Macedonia. And Paul's, um, what Paul seemed to do was always go to the largest city, hmm. which is a little strange for some Americans because in America, we think that the cities are liberal and irreligious and the countryside is religious and rural. And so mm-hmm. religion is a rural thing. And that was absolutely not the case in the ancient world. Um, hmm. The word heathen comes from the word for heath, which is the countryside. Oh, interesting. So the uncivilized people out on the heath were the heathens, and the Christians were urban-dwelling city people. And that's okay. partly because the missionary, Christian missionaries like Paul went to the cities because they're after people, and so the cities are the highest concentration of people. Mm-hmm. It's also where there would be synagogues and things like that. And so they, so um, a huge portion of the Christian population in the early centuries of the Christian church were urban dwellers, city dwellers. Okay. And that's also that where sense. there is probably so, a lot of influence, right? I mean, was that also part of Paul's mm-hmm. plan, like wanting to go to where there was a larger city and where there was supposedly yes. more influence for people? Yeah. Influ- influence has always gone from the cities outward rather mm-hmm. than the other way around. That's true. That's never changed. It's always been true as long as there have been cities. Mm-hmm. And especially in the Roman Empire, because the Roman Empire was the first empire to, to truly connect the whole world like mm-hmm. it did in the ways that it did. So the Babylonian empire and Xerxes empire um, were very, very large. And some of the Chinese empires, I think were almost as large as the Roman empire, though maybe not quite in terms of horizontal distance, but Rome was the first one that interchanged people so much. They were, they actually were the first empire to have consistent plagues Mm -hmm. because they spread around disease because they were so well connected with each other. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was just listening to a podcast this last week about a, a, a history of Rome. And, and it was interesting because he was talking about all the diseases Rome had blowing through its cities because it was so cosmopolitan and international. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, it was unlike most of the other empires who would conquer a place and then basically leave those people there. Rome would bring slaves all the way back to Rome. They'd send you know people they got in Turkey and send them to Gaul. And I mean, just and it t- turned out in terms of epidemiology, it was a really bad idea. Yeah. Um, but in yeah. terms of military success and economic success, it tended to be fairly effective hmm. for a while at least. Huh. Interesting. So anyway, yeah. So um, so that's how Paul gets to Thessalonica. So he goes into Macedonia. He goes to Philippi first. He has some success there, but is, also, is pretty ill-treated. Hmm. He goes to Thessalonica, and he has quite a bit of success there. He goes to synagogue. He reasons with people. And it says that the opposition rose first among the Jewish people because in the synagogue, what happened, it says, is that um, some of the Jewish people believed, but not that many. And then a bunch of Greeks believed. Hmm. And then Luke says that out of jealousy, some of the Jewish people stirred up trouble and um, and tried to try to get Paul and Silas in trouble and try to get him killed, actually. And... Um, you, you, what jealousy there isn't totally clear whether that means that Paul increased the ge- general religious following of the Jewish religion with the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, and they were jealous because the church grew, so to speak, or whether they were jealous for Judaism without Jesus, and that they thought this Paul guy was bastardizing it, even though he was a rabbi, that by preaching the, the rabbi Messiah, Jesus the way he was, including Gentiles and these Greek people, he was destroying and bastardizing Judaism, and they were jealous about that. Hmm. Who knows? It's probably some version of both, I would think. Yeah, but then in either case, so in either way, he was he was kicked out or driven out. Right. So yeah, so so they hide Paul and Silas. Um, they meet in this guy Jason's house, 
which is your husband's name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then, so they drag Jason before the magistrates and they're like, look, th- th- this guy's housing a guy named Paul who preaches that there's another ruler named Jesus as mm-hmm. opposed to Caesar, which they had to know wasn't true, but you just never know how things go through the grapevine. But that's a very serious offense, right? It says that the officials right. were kind of in an uproar over it. And so the um, so they send Paul off to Berea, which is a smaller city a ways away. Okay. Um, but close enough that some of the agitators in Thessalonica find out and they go there and create problems from there too. Oh, wow. Okay. And so what, what Acts says is that Paul and Silas actually have a lot of success in leading people to Jesus in both of these cities. But these are also the cities where they face the most persecution, other than maybe yeah. Ephesus. Ephesus is, okay. is, is, is awful. He says that like he was attacked by wild animals there. And it, it, he appears mm. to mean human persecutors. Yeah. Right? But Thessalonica would be equal to or next besides Ephesus, though not okay. quite as large a city as Ephesus. So, yeah. So, so Thessal- the Thessalonican ministry is rooted in a big success in people coming to faith and very strong persecution-based affliction. So how long after Paul left Thessalonica did he write this letter? The assumption is not long. Okay. So he's only in Thessalonica for approximately a month. I mean, we don't really mm-hmm. know exactly. There's no dates, right? But it's not long. And so he so he doesn't really have that much time with these folks. It's very intense mm-hmm. and very short. And then he has to leave. And so then he gets to... Um, he gets into lower Greece, which was called Achaia then. So Macedonia and Achaia both make up modern day Greece. And so Corinth and, and Athens are down in Achaia. And so he's down there and he's like, I don't know what's going on with these folks. So he decided to send Timothy, hmm. right? So Timothy goes up there and he ministers them because like he's not well known. He could, you know, he can get in there without causing an uproar. So he goes, mm-hmm. he meets with all, everybody's like following Jesus still. The church is actually still growing. And more than that, what we find out is that word of what happened in Thessalonica is is spreading everywhere. Hmm. Both that there's intense persecution and, and that um, their faith is thriving and they're hmm. faithful to the gospel in the midst yeah. of all these afflictions, including uh, some people believe that when there is in chapter, I think it's in chapter five where Paul talks about those who have fallen asleep, that is those who died, what's going to mm-hmm. happen with the resurrection with all that. Right. There is, is some, some scholars believe that specifically relationship to the, to the people who've died very quickly because because mm. paul may have been gone less than a year so these people who've quote fallen asleep in the gospel is probably not referring to natural death it very well could be referring to people who had been martyred okay and so you know what happens to these people who get killed and the yeah. answer is resurrection life is what happens to them yeah right so Anyway, so so reading First Thessalonians is within that context. Paul's been there a month. There's just been in, in this intense revival and growth of the gospel. There has been this attack of the Jewish synagogue, those who didn't believe. So there's there's some references to the Jews in mm-hmm. First Thessalonians. That's what he's talking about: is this jealousy mm-hmm. and this attack. Um, and it, which, which is like some people are like, you know, well, you can't say the Jews. Like that's not a nice thing to say. Well, if, obviously, when it was written in First Thessalonians. That was before Hitler and the you know, like the mm-hmm. Jews like that right. slur right and so it's not it's not like that's the meaning of it right mm-hmm. um, the idea is is that because the Jewish people were the carriers of the Old Testament and the covenant and all of that it's it stands to reason that they would be the most jealous to govern to govern and protect it and if they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah it stands to reason that they would fight mm-hmm. right and so they did mm-hmm. and so Paul you know obviously Jesus was not. Jesus felt like that was wrong, 
and mm-hmm. he said really strict, strict things about it, and so did Paul. But um, it's not like a weird phenomenon, you know. It's not like Jews are like more vindictive than most. It's just right, right. they because they carried the tradition, and their tradition was being in their minds attacked. Right. Rather than fulfilled, they were very defensive, obviously. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. so you, you got to read it with that context. He was there not very long. There was a great move of God. There's a lot of persecution. That persecution began by the agitation of Jews. The believers are a mixture of Jews and Greeks, but mostly Greeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this church has flourished in the midst of some of the most difficult persecution and affliction. Yeah. Which is amazing. Yeah. So that's like all like in a nutshell, the historical context of where, like where Paul is writing from and who these people were. Um, but there are right. specific themes that then we can pull out from reading for yes. Thessalonians. And you specifically, you've decided to title our next sermon series, um, imitators and examples or examples and imitators. I can't remember what the order is, but, um, yeah. yeah so why, how do we see those themes throughout, um, this book? Yeah, I mean, it's partly because the apostle explicitly says those words. Mm-hmm. So in chapter in chapter one, verse six, as he's talking about the character, he says, um, you know the kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. In verse six, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So you can see, so you see those words, Macedonia and Achaia, hopefully people now know what those are referring to geographically. Right. So what, what Paul is saying is, is that Jesus is the, is more than an example, but he is not less than an example to be completely imitated. But you, you don't get to meet him like none of us get to meet Jesus, mm-hmm. not in the concrete sense of him right. being our rabbi, so to speak. And so we end up imitating those who have imitated him before us mm-hmm. in line with the gospel. And so what Paul basically lays out is in the book is that there's the word of God going forth. There's the gospel, he calls it, the gospel of God, he calls it in chapter two, the word of God, he calls it. He, there's a number of things he says for like basically the teaching, the doctrine of the truth. And then he said, and then he basically says, yeah, but like we embodied it for you. Like we lived it out and you saw it and then you lived it out. And he especially means that in relationship to affliction. Hmm. That the thing that is such an example is believing the gospel in joy in the midst of persecution and affliction. He's like, the prophets did that before Jesus. They were persecuted by the people they were, they were giving the prophetic words to. Mm -hmm. And they were, most of them martyred and killed while preaching the truth about God, pleasing God, not men, and doing it out of joy. Right, knowing that to serve God is gain no matter what people do to you. And he's like, and then mm-hmm. that's what happened to Jesus as God's Messiah and final prophet and savior. He came, pleased God, not men, told mm-hmm. the truth, imitated God, right, lived out perfect humanity, and was killed in affliction. Right. Mm-hmm. But it says in Hebrews yeah. for the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame. So Jesus out of joy. And out of embracing the call of God to speak his truth in the world as a prophet and someone living faithfully was martyred in that sense, right? And he's like, and then that's what all the happened to all the churches in Judea, right? All the Jewish churches have mm-hmm. experienced the same thing out of joy. They've accepted Christ and under much affliction, they've shown the great worth of God. They've been examples to everyone. And he's mm-hmm. like, now, and Silas and I have been doing that. We have been terribly mistreated in Philippi and other places, but out of the joy of God, we shared the gospel with you. And mm-hmm. now you who have been much afflicted have 
enjoy, receive the gospel and are living it out and it's ringing everywhere. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? So yeah. that's the main context of being examples, but it's wider than that too, in f- the full integrity of godliness, which he then works out in chapter four and following when he talks about what it means to live in a fully godly way, or what he says in chapter two, to walk worthy of what you've been called to. Mm, yeah. So, um, and I guess you, you spoke on this a little bit earlier when you were talking about the historical context of this book, but um what what exactly was the type of persecution that these people were facing like in Thessalonica? Yeah, I mean, in Act 17, it's the use of the government. They lie to the government officials to get people in trouble. Hmm. Or the law is used um, against them in ways that are inappropriate, really. Mm-hmm. You know? So... Uh, and that's that's pretty a pretty common way persecution happens around the world. There's there is a mob of people who decide that they want to hurt Christians, mm-hmm. and they either pacify the law or they get the law to do the persecuting for them. Mm-hmm. This is very common in India, for example, right now with yeah. Hindu extremists. Yeah, and it's it's been pretty common throughout the whole of the world. I mean, that's what that's how people behave. So they they use, usually use the government or capture the government in some way to do it, um, because governments in the end at the end of the day really just want um, peace. They just want mm-hmm. no turmoil. Turmoil mm-hmm. is bad for business and bad for their reputation. And so if a crowd is loud enough about how we want the Christians to have their teeth kicked in, you know, usually a magistrate at some point will kick in their teeth so that everybody will shut up. Yeah. Because people so, are cowards, even magistrates and, and police sometimes. Yeah. So <clears throat> is there a reason, well, what, what was the reason then that you picked this book to go through for our congregation in this moment, like, is it related to what you're seeing mm. like in regards to persecution or is it, is there some other reason why you want to speak to this, like our present context in light of what is in first Thessalonians? So that's, yeah, that's kind of a complicated question for me. Um, first of all, I picked this before the COVID-19 thing. <laughs> sure. So yeah, present so, context, I guess. It's, it's mean, not in response to that. Right. But I did, we did keep it like, cause I, I did change part of my, the last series, but I didn't change this because I thought it was mm-hmm. worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Um, you, yeah. I, I believe everything in first Thessalonians is very timely right now. And you have to preach something, you know, <laughs> if you're going to preach. Mm-hmm. So I, I think theologically speaking, there is this strange emphasis in First Thessalonians where Paul is trying to help the Thessalonians feel assured in their faith while demanding that they persevere hmm. and telling them that their perseverance is necessary for their salvation, which is, is a little bit paradoxical. He's like, because God has chosen you and because you're saved and there's so much evidence of God's saving grace in you, do everything you can to, to help each other persevere to the end no matter what. Mm-hmm. because you need to. And so I, I think Christians need to grapple with this idea of believing that they are soundly saved and secure and assured in that salvation, but you have to persevere to be saved. Right. We've talked about that a lot before, like uh, in that, that coin to turn, we've said so many times, gracious striving that like there is, mm-hmm. we, we've been given everything so that, we, and we can't earn our salvation. And yet that means that we need to participate and persevere persevere because of that yeah and yeah and and christians have struggled with that 
doctrine a lot because people, our mind doesn't like paradoxes mm-hmm. or tensions. And I've said a lot of times that the Bible, in many cases, theologically isn't philosophical; it's psychological. It tells us, like it, it tells us something shaped for the human mind and heart rather than the analytical truth. So it's mm-hmm. either true or false that once you're saved, you're always saved, or like mm-hmm. that if you're a saint, you will persevere. Right? Mm-hmm. Philosophically speaking, I think that's probably true that if you're a saint, you will persevere. Right? Mm-hmm. But that's not how it's presented pastorally. How it's yeah. presented pastorally is, in your assurance, persevere. Let mm-hmm. assurance not make you lazy, right? And I think in chapter four, he's like, make you asleep and, and drunk. He's like, you know what? What people do at night right. is they get drunk and they get stoop and they sleep. And he's mm-hmm. like, that's what it's like to not be vigilant spiritually. But you're, uh, you are of the light. That is, you are, you're already saved. Therefore, mm-hmm. let us be awake like people of the day, awake and sober. Mm-hmm. And so that tension is something I think is really important to get. I also think that um, I, I, it's funny, people over 50 seem to feel like persecution. there's a, a tide of turning persecution in America. They kind of expect it to fall at any moment to become mm-hmm. significantly worse. Mm-hmm. And younger people in their in their 20s, often don't it's kind of a split because i've met a number of 20 somethings who are like this is really bad and hmm. others who are like yeah yeah you know it just we're just not in charge anymore like it used to be the judeo-christian values were kind of in charge and that's not true we live in a pluralistic society and in pluralism nobody's on home base and that, that this is what it feels like but we're not being treated any worse than anybody else mm-hmm. i don't really agree with that but i don't i'm not like like there's some truth to that for sure i mean there was a Christian cultural hegemony for a long time in the United States during the lifetimes of the grandparents of those people. Mm-hmm. And th- it's not true now, especially in cities. Right. And things are pluralistic. So that's true, right? Um, however, within pluralism, it is likely that minorities, minorities within the plurality will get persecuted where their beliefs aren't majoritarian beliefs. So, so what I mean mm-hmm. by that is, it, like, if you, let's say you have seven minorities, but those seven minorities agree on something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or six of those seven minorities agree on something. So let's say, um, let's say it's government schooling. Let's say that of the seven minorities, one minority says, I don't want to send my kids to government schools, what we call public schools, right? Sure. But six say it's really important for everybody's kids to go to the public schools or the government schools, right? Well, mm-hmm. see now, yes, it's pluralistic and there's a number of minorities, but minorities cobble together on certain issues to create majorities and right. can then persecute the constituent minorities, right? So, mm-hmm. Right. And there's all, and that's true for like every issue. Like people could say everybody should have guns or nobody should have guns. And if five out of the seven groups thinks nobody should have guns, the two groups that think everybody should have guns are going to lose out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, two gr- three groups out of seven could think that hunting is okay. Right mm-hmm. or fishing is okay, and the other ones say no, it's not, and then they can outlaw it for the other people. So part of part of democracy and majoritarianism, when you don't understand liberalism, which is the idea that people should be left maximally alone and majorities only get to have their way in certain areas, right? Which is was it was built in the American Constitution, but it's being lost now, pretty per per, per not progressively um, pervasively. Right, that there's this realm of human freedom, which is called liberty, and majorities have no right to make decisions in those. And then in other areas where they do, majority rules, right? Mm-hmm. What, what unfettered democracy is, is just majority rules. Wherever the majority mm-hmm. wants to make a decision, it just does. And that's the rule, right? Which is very anti liberal, mm-hmm. right? Because liberal means leaving people alone. 
specifically minorities alone, right? And so Christians will find themselves in constituent minorities, where mm-hmm. even though there's a pluralistic majority, we will be in the minority a lot of times, right? Yeah. That's a problem. And what it's going to produce is persecution and de- sure. disenfranchisement and so on. And mm-hmm. and that there and the people who persecute us aren't going to say it's because of your religion most of the time. Sometimes it will be anti-religious bigotry, especially in very secular places like the West Coast, East Coast, or even a place like Madison. Like like I've re- I've experienced anti-religious bigotry in Madison mm-hmm. for sure. Right? Yeah. And they'll say no, it's the kind of religion you believe in, right? The supernatural, biblical kind, right? <laughs> Which is Christianity, yeah. right? So it, it, they're never going to say it's because you're a Christian. Or very rarely, but it will often be because you are obeying Christ. Right. Because if you, if you obey Christ and you don't rationalize a reason why you don't have to, and you really obey him, you will find persecution increasing. And it is increasing. I mean, there are people in our church who have lost jobs, missed promotions, been mm-hmm. fired. Um, they have their marriages. They, they married non-Christians and then they became Christians. And that mm-hmm. actually that ended up becoming something serious enough that their spouse left them. Um, yeah. I've seen people get um, treated in very bigoted, bigoted ways in courts and in business deals because they were believers, and other people ganged up against them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, there- it just—I mean, I just—I just know this because I, I when I when I interact with people who are like, "Oh, it's not that bad," it's because they don't—they don't shepherd a flock. Mm-hmm. Like they—they're not in touch with all the sheep. They're just in touch right. with whether or not they've received very difficult persecution as a constituent minority but as a person who's a pastor who's in touch with the whole of the flock it's happening all the time and as somebody who's 42 who are like if if people are experiencing persecution like well is it fair to call persecution something as simple as like just having you like someone rolls their eyes at you at work when you say something in like that has a more faith-based foundation to what you're saying like or is that taking the word persecution and like stretching it too far where we shouldn't qualify certain things as persecution. Like, is there a line there? Cause I found my, like when I worked at Starbucks, like obviously I don't, I don't face persecution working at high point. Um, but like when I worked at Starbucks, I found like, yeah, there, when I said that I was going to go to church or I talked about my faith at all. And there was, mm-hmm. I guess I was picked on, like I didn't know if I should call that persecution or right. not because it, it's not what we see in the Thessalonians. <laughs> is that yeah? Is that a right. fair? Well, I mean, persecu- persecution persecution is both qualitative and quantitative, right? So, like, you can have like extremely low grade persecution, mm-hmm. and you can have extremely high grade persecution, right? You can be killed, or you can. I mean, I mean, think about this, right? If you talk to a, an average secular liberal person in, in Madison, you say, "Is there such a thing as a microaggression?" They'll say, well, of course there is. They'll say, is there such a thing as a microaggression against a Christian? Mm. And the answer is either dumb silence or no. (laughs) Or maybe theoretically, but you can't have microaggressions against majorities because they actually think religious people are majority, like which is delusional. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But they they think that, and so a lot of people think that religious people, especially conservative Christian people, I conservative, I mean that theologically, not politically. Yeah, that those people have clout, which is false. It hasn't been true for most of my adult life. It's mm-hmm. com- it is completely false in a place like Madison. The only conservatively religious people who have any clout are are skin color minorities. So black people who are religiously conservative have some clout because of intersectional intersectional ideology. 
that because mm-hmm. they're more oppressed peoples, they have clout no matter what they believe. Same, the same is true for some Latinos. Mm-hmm. Not really true for Asians um, mm-hmm. or Korean, Korean and Chinese folks. So, yeah, so you can have all kinds of low-grade persecution. It's still persecution. Okay. Right? Um, yeah. And a lot of it is still very subtle, right? And so, um, yeah, some of our African-American friends can, can give us adv- some advice about how to live under this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it, it's very obvious to me. Like when I was a kid growing up in rural New York, there wasn't a lot of um, low-grade disenfranchising, rejectional pers- social persecution. Madison is full of it to the mm-hmm. brim. Mm. Everybody I know who's a believer who's in public life hides their faith to some extent. Mm. They just shut yeah. up about it. They know that if they found out they wouldn't get a job, they couldn't get in the PhD program they want to. They all know that. They all say it openly. Mm-hmm. And they all know it. And some of them, because they haven't revealed their faith, they've had professors and administrators and bosses and people like that openly talk about their bigotry against Christians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, like, it's, not, it's not like a... I mean, if you're a believer and you're in touch with enough believers in a place like Madison, it's not, it's not like up for debate, right? Yeah. You have to be a yeah. special kind of... You just, not a special kind of out of touch, but like if you're not in touch, if you don't have a system through which you're in touch with lots of people, it's easy because maybe if you don't feel very persecuted and you know there are other people who are persecuted for other reasons, like if you Mm -hmm. feel like racism is pretty strong, you may be like, well, they're dealing with a lot worse than what I'm dealing with. Well, yeah, of course, Mm -hmm. I guess maybe that's very, that could be very true, but it doesn't mean like you you don't say that one abuse isn't an abuse because there's worse abuses out there. Right. Yeah. Abuse is abuse. Persecution is persecution. Disenfranchisement is disenfranchisement on one level. But then how qualitative or quantitatively intense it is also matters. Mm-hmm. Like we're not we're not suffering from the same persecution Nigerian Christians are suffering from right. from Boko Haram where we, you know people get beheaded and women sold into sex trafficking. And that's not happening. Mm-hmm. Right? So, yeah. But I think in terms of um, how you resist persecution, I think you do it wherever you find it. I, I think you mm-hmm. say, is it right that you should do this? Which is what Paul says to the Roman centurion when they're going to whip it. He says, listen, mm-hmm. I'm a Roman citizen. Is it right or legal for you to just beat me because somebody said something was wrong with what I did? Mm-hmm. I, I think that that appeal to conscience and that appeal to injustice is in, is fundamental to Christian faith. I think we should yeah. call persecution what it is when it happens. But yeah. I think what some some of our more some of our more, how, how would I say this? Um, friends that just they don't want to be seen as reactionarily like oh I'm being persecuted like to have a persecution complex. Mm-hmm. They want to be like yeah you got to be really careful though because sometimes it just looks like special pleading, and that's what mm-hmm. it sounds like to people. I think that's true. I think it's very easy to have a persecution complex and engage in special pleading. I also think it's very likely that even if you're not doing special pleading, people will think you are, which is mm-hmm. what a lot of white people think about black people. Mm-hmm. They think when, when black people are like, I'm disenfranchised and th- I'm being like, I'm getting microaggressions are happening and people or our kids are traumatized and people say that in, pu- in public. And I think what a lot of white people think is, yeah, nice persecution complex. Hmm. Like whatever. Like, of course yeah. you think that, but it's not really true. Mm-hmm. And, they sure think it's true and it might be true. Yeah. It probably is true, at least in certain circumstances. And and they're like, oh, we don't want to sound like that. We don't want to sound alarmist and mm-hmm. like, because, you know, and I understand that. I, I totally understand that. Yeah. But I also think we shouldn't be naive. Right. Yeah. So in addition to this concept of persecution and being able to identify in some ways to what the thes what the Thessalonians were going through and how we can resonate with that as Christians. What are other, um, 
like what else in this series is going to be relevant and helpful for either a non-Christian to know about or how Christians can respond and engage with non-Christians? I think one of the things that there's, there's, I mean, there's a number of ways, obviously, but I I think one is there's a strong emphasis on holiness and that real truthful godliness is necessary to, for our faith to ring out among all peoples, because without examples worthy of imitating, the gospel doesn't authenticate in the hearts and minds of people, especially those ill disposed to believe it. So I think that's first. Mm -hmm. The second is sometimes you hear people push for evangelism. And then other times you hear people say, you know, deeds, not creeds kind of thing where they're like, you know, preach the gospel, always use words if necessary, which is mm-hmm. falsely attributed to St. Francis. You know, I hate that <laughs> sentence. Yes. Preach the gospel, always use words if necessary. Um, not because I'm a super evangelistic type, but because one, it is simply absolutely the opposite of what St. Francis would ever say. St. Francis used to go out into the woods and preach to animals. Mm. Like he preached to people who couldn't understand lang- creatures that couldn't understand language. Okay, he was he was kind of committed to the spoken word. Okay, so yeah. the idea that St. Francis would say, preach the gospel, always use words, is just crazy. Okay, first mm-hmm. of all. Secondly, there's no historical evidence he ever said it. So it's it's history-splaining in the worst kind of way. Mm-hmm. But, but what it does is it also creates a really ridiculous false dichotomy, right? Nobody would think that if you preach, but you have no character, that that's right. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that's stupid. Everybody's like, yeah, that's crazy. Nobody's ever going to believe you if you don't live it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, why do you think anybody's going to believe it if you don't say it? Yeah. Right? Like the, the fact is, is that people don't really perceive your behavior until you speak. Yeah. Right? It's One just easy to come why, out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, and so, so Paul says in chapter one, for example, um, we came and preached to you the word and you know how we lived among you for your sake. He says, mm-hmm. then he says, similarly, then you became examples. The word rang out from you and your faith has been made known everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. so what they did, like the change that happened in the Thessalonians was really profound and everybody saw it, right? Their godliness, but also their faith rang out. That is, they spoke words. People went places and told people things. Mm-hmm. And so the union of spoken word with personal holiness the union of those two things is fundamental and creates mm-hmm. fire. You, you know, you've mm-hmm. got to have, you know, fuel and oxygen when you tie it in with the heat of the Holy Spirit to make fire. Mm-hmm. And if you think you can have one of those without the other, you're just wrong. You just, mm-hmm. it's never going to be the case. And so I think what's, I think what's beautiful about this is that the effectiveness of our ministries is going to be very directly tied to, to our own personal spiritual growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because because personal spiritual growth in Christian faith is not just growth in our own psychological well being and our like um, internal zenness or something. Mm-hmm. It's love for others. It's a willingness mm-hmm. to be sacrificially loving towards others. So the more godly we become, the more good it is for everyone else, mm-hmm. and the more effective it is towards everybody else, especially when accompanied by clear speech. Mm-hmm. Because if the gospel is true, speaking it is part of love. Right. Yeah. It must be spoken because it, because receiving it means everything. Mm-hmm. So I think the union of those two things is important in a time like this where there is part of the persecution that happens right now in places like Madison is all of the signals we get that we should shut up about our faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I think that when Christians realize you have to live it out and it needs to come out of you, including verbally, right. somehow, in some way, as naturally mm-hmm. as possible, people begin to realize 
that they have to find a way. And if, listen, if people could do it at Thessalonica where they could get killed, you can do it here. Yeah. Right? Like, okay, fine. We, we're not being persecuted that intensely. Then why are you, why are you shutting up about your faith so much then? Mm-hmm. Right? I think that's a legitimate like, question like if say, that people need to yeah, answer if you're, for themselves. If, like, if, if you're 28 or 30 years old and you're like, Nick, we're not really getting persecuted in Madison. My answer is, great. Then how many people have you shared your faith with in the last mm-hmm. week? Mm-hmm. Because if, 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 it, if you're not, then why aren't you? Right? Mm-hmm. Because you can. And it doesn't matter if they believe or find it compelling. Right. Right? Yeah. There's some other death that I think people think they are dying to when this type of persecution happens. And I think that will be really important to talk about throughout this series because it's not like a physical yeah. death that we are facing right now. But there is definitely right. other types of deaths that we are clearly afraid of, which is keeping us from speaking what we know to be true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'll be thought uncool, for example, which is like right. a death to a lot of young Americans. Right. Right. Yeah. And when you're younger, especially, people don't realize this, but just sociologically speaking, when you're young, um, you, you want to believe that you like don't care about what old people think of you, but they're the people who open all the doors. Mm. And, and peers and older people, people in positions of power. And so people just naturally conform to what people want from them. Mm-hmm. They don't even realize they're doing it half the time. There's, there's no one more conforming than a high school student, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but what, what the gospel calls us is to be so filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit and the promise of future glory and the beauty of Christ and what he's already done mm-hmm. that we please God and not men that we, we don't, we really don't care what they think of us mm-hmm. and we really don't care if they hate us. And very few of us live there. Yeah. And one of the reasons I think the message of first Thessalonians is so important is we've got to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, do you have any other, not, the, the, yeah. My last thought is in chapter two, there's this really cool section where he talks about how this happens and he says, it happens through integrity. He's like, but but what you saw in my ministry was both the default ministry of a mother and a mm-hmm. father. Mm-hmm. Right? That as a mother, I I treated you as tenderly. I shared my very life with you. We were so close to you. Mm-hmm. There's this very, there's a strong emphasis on the nurturing ministry, the, the motherly part of ministry, right? And then he's like, and as a yeah. father, we worked hard to not be a burden to anybody. And we exhorted and we pushed you to mm-hmm. live a life worthy of your calling and your name. Mm-hmm. And I think that we need to realize as a church that we have we, we have to have that sort of traditionally feminine touch of loving people closely and sharing our lives with them and being there for them and nurturing them and helping them and supporting them. And also the traditional masculine role of exhorting and pushing and calling people up to who they need to be and prophetically speaking into their lives and even being demanding about who we must become. Mm-hmm. And I think that both of those ministries have to exist. I think when a church or a person goes too far towards either of those, they, their ministry is no longer whole and doesn't really look like Jesus. Right. Yeah. One which could point to why the Thessalonians were as strong as they as they were, because they had both of those foundations mm-hmm. built into how they be, became to know and really grapple with their faith. Yeah. And then I think yeah. naturally imitated that and how they did their faith in their mm. ministry, which I think was really yeah. fruitful. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to the series. Um, I think it's going to be really good. Um, I, it's going to be we're so starting good. It it's gonna be so good, <laughs> as they all are. This, this coming week, also, also Lloyd is gonna preach a couple sermons in the series too. So people who've been missing oh, him will get a chance to hear him again. Great, yeah. So this Sunday, April twenty sixth, that's the first one that we'll we'll be starting into this, and yeah, looking forward to it. Imitators and examples. Yep. Great. Thanks, See Nick. You guys next time.
for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.